All right, guys, we have actually a big, big guest today, Andrew Yang, on the show, who we were supposed to have a while ago, but then had to cancel for COVID. Mm, So find out how he's doing, check in with him about his big New York City mayoral race, where he is currently dominating in the polls, much to the media's chagrin, which we will also discuss with him. That's right. I'm actually really excited because there's a lot of stuff I really love about Andrew Yang, even to the extent to point out that I think he's better than Bernie on a bunch of issues. You yeah. know? So I love Andrew Yang in some ways, but there's other ways in which I'm very critical. And so what I want to do is explore all those things with him. I want to ask him about the areas where I agree and ask him about where I massively disagree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've um, I've known Andrew for quite a while. I met him when I was at MSNBC and he was running Venture for America and we kept in touch some over those years. And so That sounds like a Ponzi scheme, by the way. So it does. <laughs> maybe that's why I moved on from it. No, Venture for America. It's not a, it's not a Ponzi scheme. Um, so I am not an unbiased Andrew Yang observer. Mm. Um, I'm always cheering for the guy is, is the bottom line. But yeah, like you, there were some things in his presidential campaign and especially some things in his New York mayoral's race that were questionable or disappointing to me. So we'll ask him about all of that stuff. Um, but there's also a lot of big news this week about what Joe Biden's next moves might be. Mm -hmm. So of course, got the relief bill done, which was supposed to be the emergency piece, $15 minimum wage, all the longer term stuff got stripped down. In fact, that was really the only piece that was supposed to be in that was going to be a longer term Mm -hmm. thing. There's a child tax credit, which is temporary. They assure us that they're going to extend it longer, et cetera, et cetera. But that was like the relief package. So now we're getting a little bit of a look at what he's hoping to put into, I guess this is the build back better piece of the plan that's meant to be longer term, more structural uh, infrastructure, changes. infrastructure plan. Well, there's two pieces to it. Okay. There's the infrastructure piece, and then there's a social welfare piece. Okay. So the infrastructure, he's talking about one trillion. These are all reported details. He's officially announcing this on March 30th in Pittsburgh, but this is kind of what they leaked out to the mm-hmm. press. Um, one trillion for infrastructure, two hundred billion for housing, a hundred billion for green climate research and development, and then on the social welfare part. Um, the big pieces are expanding that child benefit, not mm-hmm. also not permanently, though, just for a few more years, I guess, for budgetary reasons. I don't really know why. And then adding on universal pre-K mm-hmm. for young kids and two years of free community college on the other end. So those are the pieces. And oh, it's only two years for community, community college. college. Yes. Oh, I didn't. I thought it was four. Two years community college. Yeah. So, so it's wait, two- that's going back on the campaign promise thing. Cause he said free for everybody under one hundred twenty-five thousand. Correct. Yes, that is correct. Yes. (laughs) Like, why? Um, So and then there's also big questions about, like, how seriously should you actually take this plan Mm -hmm. when we're not sure we have a mechanism to pass it? So a lot of these pieces you could do through reconciliation. But um, Joe Manchin had said before that he didn't want to do another thing through reconciliation without having right. Republicans on board. Yeah. Will he change his mind? Maybe. He's out saying, hey, I would go huge on infrastructure. It's basically seeming open to this plan mm-hmm. by and large. But again, does he draw a hard line on there's got to be Republicans on board because there will 100% be zero Republicans on board with this plan. And then the other piece is, um, you know, is there any sort of real movement 
on the filibuster. Uh, Biden has seemed to open himself up more to the idea of getting rid of the filibuster altogether or at least doing a talking filibuster reform. Again, Manchin has been and Cinema and a couple others have been the big stumbling block there. So in some ways, as big of a question in this package is how and what the mechanics are. Do they split it into two bills? Are they going to try to push it through regular order where you need 60 votes? Are they going to get rid of the filibuster? Are they going to do it through reconciliation? Those mechanical process things as sort of like brain numbing as they are, as are as important as what the details of the bill are. Okay. So there's a bunch of stuff to talk about here. Um, so I agree with you completely. The whole conversation is moot and useless if we don't do either filibuster elimination or filibuster reform. Yeah. If you don't do that, it's just dumb to even have the conversation. There's literally no way you're going to get 60 for any of it. Right. Not even any You're not going to get one. It would be a miracle to get one. <laughs> now, I saw the reporting, too, that, oh, Biden's now open or whatever to eliminating the filibuster. But I'm skeptical because it's, you know, you never know what they the media misinterprets on purpose or puts out you know what i mean like you never know until uh, let me see it let me see right. what you're gonna fucking do i don't care about what they're reporting you're gonna well do. and on that you can easily see that as a tactic to try to get republicans to the table like look if you guys aren't gonna work for it that with ain't us, gonna work with fucking getting nine i know of them. my ass cheeks you're i know nine of them. i know it's not gonna work but you could see them using that as a tactic yes. to try to say look if you guys don't do something with us then we're gonna blow this whole thing up and get rid of the filibuster and then you'll have no power okay so now let's go through the specifics of it one trillion dollars for infrastructure woefully inadequate so inadequate joe manchin himself was i think he said three or four, four. trillion that's joe manchin yeah. saying that now <laughs> bernie's plan when he ran you know what it was all in about 16 trillion dollars wow. to spend on infrastructure wow so and, and by the way i, I went and looked this up because i was really interested in what the experts say the actual number is to adequately upgrade everything mm. as of 2017 the number was 4.7 trillion just to adequately upgrade, upgrade. It. now i'm of the belief that if i ever ran for president one of my main things that i would run on is basically making the U.S. infrastructure number one in the world. I want A++ infrastructure that would make other countries jealous of us because it's so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And really, when you talk about dealing with the Republicans or even just dealing uh, you know, with some of the more conservative Democrats, if you're not coming in at $10 trillion to then get to the $5 trillion, which is what is just adequate, Right. Then what are we doing? You're coming in at a trillion dollars? Right. What do you think it is, 1984? Like, <laughs> right. I don't understand what you're and doing. And why? So Why what, arbitrarily limit yourself like that? Because he probably doesn't really care. But anyway, so $1 trillion for infrastructure, woefully inadequate. $200 billion for housing. I'm not sure what the actual number would be that experts say is, is necessary for that. $100 billion for climate. Again, I'm not sure what the experts say is ideal on that. The expanding the child benefit thing, that kind of annoys me because, like you said, it's only temporary. And that's the problem with the COVID bill as well. It's like, if you're only doing the temporary shot of adrenaline, you don't have a fucking legacy. You mm. don't have a legacy. You want a legacy? Give me something permanent. Give me something like Medicare. Give me something like Social Security. Give me something that'll last a generation. Right. Give me. I would rather have a UBI at $800 a month in perpetuity than the one-time check of $1,400 or whatever. Obviously. Fuck, you know? Yeah, obviously. Um, then you said expanding. Oh, we already did that one. Universal pre-K was the other one. The details of that are going to matter, but if they actually do that, that'd be phenomenal. Huge. Um, and the two years of free community college, like we said, is going back on his campaign. He's done this so many times where originally he was saying free college for everybody under if you make under $125,000. This actually reminds me of when he was on the campaign trail, public option for health care. And then that just became uh, subsidized COBRA well, and expand ACA subsidy. Which is also in here. 
is ACA subsidies, which they did in the relief bill. Again, temporarily, they're paying for people's COBRA, which is a giant health insurer giveaway. That's it. Giant health insurer giveaway. And then, I mean, they expanded subsidies of the ACA. That is a good thing. That will mean that more people can afford to buy health care on the exchanges. But that's not what you promised on the campaign and, and trail. And it's, it's also a ruse. They're, they're, they're really just stealing money from – they're giving money to the well, health insurance it's, companies. Well, it's another yeah. health insurer give us. This that's is very right. comfortable. This gives them guaranteed income. That's great. More customers for the health insurers, mm-hmm. right? So, again, it's it's a marginal improvement. It's better. More people will be yeah, able to afford Trump, it. better than Trump, the classic thing. Wow. <laughs> also, it leaves you really – That's it's not a structural change also because it leaves you really vulnerable to, you know, the next president doesn't up the subsidies, takes them down a pet or just leaves them where they are and lets inflation do its thing. I mean, this creates a real vulnerability, whereas obviously you and I would like to see Medicare for all. But even public option, at least that's something different where there's a public competitor where you can buy into Medicare, where you have a real additional government um, competitor in the marketplace, that would be a real change. Yeah. Whereas subsidies, yeah, it's a temporary band-aid. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be critical of here if they even actually are able to muster the will to to get it through. So the the big issues, it's it's a one time shot of adrenaline, like you said, and like we we were just talking about. It's not it's not in perpetuity. It's not continuous, um, and that's. There's no way to put a positive spin on that to say this is going to leave me a legacy. It's just not going to leave me a legacy. And so um, let's talk about the tax plan a little bit, too, because there's a lot more that came out. Yeah. So I have here, let me tell you what Jeff Stein is reporting. Um, Major Biden tax hikes eyed for next bill. This is not final. And actually, before I get to that, let Mm -hmm. me say this. Um, My biggest issue with this is, again, it's classic Democrat, classic corporate Democrat, is that you're compromising up front. You're giving, like, the halfway position up front. Mm -hmm. And when you give the halfway position up front, now you have nowhere to go because the Republicans are going to tell you to go fuck yourself. And on a lot of these things, even Manchin and Cinema are going to tell you, well, I want even less than that. So if you're not coming in hot and you're not coming in with stuff that's recurring, we're going to end up in nowheresville. But anyway, back to the taxes. So... Um, Biden wants the corporate tax rate to go from 21%, which is what it is now, to 28%. Mm-hmm. A global minimum tax to 21%. We'll okay. come back to all this stuff. Uh, top income tax rate to go to 39.6%, which is about what it was in the Obama years. They want to end fossil fuel subsidies. They want to uh, tax investment gains of a million dollars or more as wage income as opposed to capital gains, which would raise that rate for wealthy people. Uh, they want to tax assets that are passed on at death, and they don't want to do anything with the salt deduction. The SALT deduction is the state and local tax deduction where if you're in blue states and you pay a lot of taxes at the state level, the federal government used to let you deduct that off your federal tax bill. Right. But Trump got rid of that to sort of punish wealthy people in blue states. Right. And Biden's like, well, I'm going to leave that because it's okay to raise taxes on wealthy people. Well, that's exactly right. right. The key thing there is that largely affects upper income yes, exactly. taxpayers. And actually, a lot of Democrats have been pushing Schumer and Pelosi, who both represent California, New York, states where this is very relevant and where their well, you know, healed constituents are very concerned about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Biden smartly pushes that off the table. Yes. And that is one thing I know you want to talk about each of these. But one thing I've noticed with him. So he doesn't back a financial transactions tax, doesn't back a wealth tax. Right. Doesn't back a public option. The things that are sort of like named and labeled. He really seeks to avoid. Mm -hmm. And I almost wonder if it's a political strategy of like, 
the wealth tax is phenomenally popular. Financial transactions tax is phenomenally popular. But they also are things that the Republican base understands what they are. Like they've been branded enough that you would probably get a partisan divide on support of those things, even though, again, broadly, they're popular. So it seems like he goes for policies that haven't been sort of like branded on the national stage because it makes it harder for the Republicans ultimately to attack. Yeah, he's scared of his own shadow. The salt thing is another example of that, though, right. where it's like Republican. If you watch Fox News, they've they've gone they've educated their audience about the salt tax and why it's silly that Democrats want to, you know, give rich people a, a tax break through the salt thing. And, and they've demonized this successfully. So he just leaves it off the table so he doesn't have right. to deal with that, yeah. which, again, in that instance is actually the right. Yeah, move. sure. Absolutely. So now let's go through one by one corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent. Before the Trump tax bill in 2017, the top nominal rate for corporations was 35%. Mm. So again, this is classic Democrat. He's not saying, let's go back to the 35. He's not saying, it, sh it should be even more than 35. It should be 40 or whatever. Right. He's saying, no, I'm going to go to 28, which is splitting the difference. So that's classic Democrat. That annoys the shit out of me. I don't, the global minimum tax, I honestly don't even know why we're having the conversation about it. It sounded cool in theory, and I was actually a little excited about it when I saw the original articles. Then as soon as I read the articles on it, I was like, every article is like, this is totally unenforceable. <laughs> so why are we having a conversation? Well, like, what's the point? Is it just a virtue signaling exercise? Hmm. Is that what it is? I guess that's what it is, right? Because again, totally unenforceable. Um, the top income tax rate to 39.6%. Again, that goes back to roughly what it was in the Obama years. Um, Again, I just think that's silly. Under Dwight Eisenhower, the top marginal rate was 93%. Under JFK, it was about 70%. And again, marginal taxes are not the same as, you know, people don't, a lot of people don't know what marginal rates are. They don't understand that that's taxing every dollar above a certain line, you know? So there are plans that are like every dollar you make over a million dollars per year gets taxed at whatever, 50%, 60%. Right. It's not the government comes and takes 50 or 60% of all your money. You know what I mean? Right. But just going back to the Obama years, again, we need a lot more than that. You need to raise taxes on the wealthy a lot more than that. Ending fossil fuel subsidies is unquestion unquestionably positive. Yep. Right? There's no by the ways in that one. Um, and the taxing investment gains over a million dollars as wage income as opposed to capital gains, that's good. But honestly, I think I'm of the belief you should tax it all like it's income because it's just gambling, Agreed. gambling in the stock market. Why should you pay less than somebody who's a teacher or a construction worker or an accountant or somebody who actually works? Who's for actually working yeah. versus just like moving money around. Right. Yeah. I substantively agree with 100 percent of that. I do think there's a political cleverness here, though, um, that makes it very hard for the right or even right wing Democrats to attack, which is one of the big pledges. Remember, one of the big things that Biden talked about on the campaign trail is he wasn't going to raise taxes on anyone making less than four hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars, a lot of money to make mm -hmm. in a year. And that is a significant increase from what Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama had as their line. Theirs was 250. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to raise taxes on anybody who's making less than 250. Um, but and so I think the Obama Hillary position is obviously the better position mm -hmm. um, versus Biden, who draws this line at, at 400. However, some of the biggest pains in the asses and some of the most powerful constituencies in American politics are the 250 to 400 thousand dollar people. And they are people that are also largely in the Democratic base. At the, that is the base of the party right now. They're extremely vocal. They're extremely powerful. They're a giant pain in the ass. And so Biden leaps over all of their criticism by just saying, eh, I'm not going to touch you guys. I'm only going to touch the wealthy. And I think
think you see that too in the capital gains thing of it's the first million dollars you're going to continue to get favorable treatment on. It's only people who are making more than a million dollars in capital gains that we're going to touch. So again, I think that there's a political cleverness here that is going to make it hard for Republicans to really muster a defense of this thing or to demonize this thing. I saw Mitch McConnell came out and said, like, oh, the infrastructure is just a Trojan horse and they're going to put all the tax hikes inside. All this stuff is extraordinarily popular. It's very, very modest, as you're pointing out. It's mm -hmm. like not nearly what they could or should ultimately be doing. But I think you're going to see a re replay from the Republicans of the relief bill where they just they don't even really they don't vote for it, but they don't even really try to resist it. They don't try to demonize it. They just move on to like, let's just talk about the border. Or let's just talk about whatever the Dr. Seuss controversy of the day is, because this package has is too sort of unobjectionable for them to really be able to wrap their hands around and demonize effectively. So I actually disagree with you because in my experience, and I hope it ends up like the like the COVID relief package where they end up doing that. But my fear is, and I've already seen some of this going on, is that they'll just lie about it. Is that they'll just be like, Biden's raising taxes on the middle class and working people. How dare he? Biggest tax increase in history. They'll say some nonsense like that and they'll run with it and they'll hammer away and then eventually it'll land and it'll move the polls a little bit. Um, but you mentioned political cleverness there. Let me tell you what I would view as politically clever. He's half being politically clever with the whole like $400,000 and less, mm -hmm. not going to raise your taxes. Um, but what I would do is I would actually say, I'm actually going to cut taxes for middle class families yeah. and poor folks. Yeah. Because I've never met a tax cut I didn't like for those people because they need more money. Yeah. So I would say that. But then the other thing I would do, I would go hard in the other direction for the wealthy. Yes. Where I would even float things I'm not even sure I necessarily believe in. 100% tax on all net worth above a billion dollars. I, I do believe in that. No more billionaires. I would be all I like them apples. that. And the point of doing that. I will that, instantly become a Biden stan if you did that. The point of doing <laughs> that is is the classic move, why you should be a, a lefty with a backbone, is it baits the Republicans into arguing phenomenally unpopular positions. Mm -hmm. If you're out there yelling about $15 minimum wage and they go, I don't want a $15 minimum wage, you win. You right. won because they just said it. They just said the thing that they weren't supposed to. I, well, I think everybody should have health care in the middle of a pandemic. I don't think everybody should have health care. I win. Thank you. So let's right. have that debate. And I want Biden to stake a position that's as progressive as can be. I want him to be the, the most badass social Democrat of all time where he's like, we're going to we're going to tax capital gains more than we tax income. because That's the way it should be. You're just gambling in the stock market. Pay more, bitch. Like, I want that kind of an approach. I want the top marginal tax rate. Again, let's make the top marginal tax rate. Let's go back to Dwight Eisenhower. I, I agree with the Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Ninety three percent for the top marginal tax rate on everything above five million dollars. Yep. How you like me now? Yeah, that's what you do. So bait them into defending the wealthy very clearly and then you win. Right. Well, their strategy is like the basement strategy. It's like the continuation of the basement strategy. They right, just right, want right. to yeah, avoid yeah. a debate altogether. Yes, that's right. We don't mm -hmm. want to. And so, again, something like the financial transactions tax. I mean, you could take that case to the American people all day long, mm -hmm. go all, have the fight, go on cable news, divide the country along. I mean, it would be it's probably 70 percent in favor of it and Republicans would be there freaking out. But they their approach is to try to I mean, as much as Obama was like no drama, Obama, they're the ones who are really trying to take the no drama approach. Yeah, we're going to craft everything from the beginning to just even to avoid a debate. That's what they did on the relief bill. And again, I think it's part of why they don't 
put any of the sort of named branded policy ideas into their proposal. So, like, they're not going to do a Green New Deal, but they'll do some climate stuff right, yeah. that you really can't object to on the on the like sort of merits of. They'll do something in healthcare, but it's not going to be even the public option because even that's too sort of like name branded at this point. They're not going to do a wealth tax. They're not going to do a financial transactions tax. Um, and you're right. I think your strategy would be more – it would accomplish more, number one. Um, I do think it would lead to him being a much more popular president. But the strategy he's pursuing is going to get him, you know, where he is, which is like – 56% approval rating, Democrats being kind of like right on the door of being able to hold on to their power in the midterms if his approval rating stays in that place. So it could be there could be a worse strategy, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. There is some like there is a logic to it. He's not going to be what we want him to be. That's right. just yeah. not who he is. Right. Yeah. So in terms of Joe Biden's best strategy, this is probably the best political strategy you could imagine from Joe Biden. Well, let me just give you my biggest fear about this approach, because I really think it comes down to this. My biggest fear is I think you're right in your description of his strategy. Yeah. Um, the basement strategy. Yes, it's definitely the basement strategy. But my biggest fear is since you're coming in sort of weak at like corporate tax rate to 28 percent, not back to 35 uh, percent, top income tax rate to 39.6 percent. What you're doing is now you've set the terms of the debate and you've find the left fringe. And now Manchin and Cinema and the evil eight Democrats who are against the minimum wage increase, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, you're saying 39.6? I'll give you 36. Yeah. Whereas if he came in at like, no, 70% for everything above a million. Right. Then they're, whoa, whoa. Uh, okay, maybe I'll do 50. I won't do 70. I'll do 45. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So he's defined the debate in a bad way up front where now even the nefarious elements and the more conservative elements of his own party, they could wreck it even worse than the Republicans who are never going to come along with any of it. Well, and here's the other thing. The flip side of the, like, no-name branded policy idea uh, political play is that it doesn't give people much to, like, really get excited about, you know? Yes, that's it's true, like, too, yeah. Yeah, it's harder to— It's not FDR. That's not FDR. It's not FDR. You look at this and you're like, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking right now at the tax uh, hike proposals. I'm like— Okay. Yeah. Sure. All right. It's That's fine. Better right. than Trump. It's, it's better. Always, right. It's exactly. But and that was the thing that Obama um, struggled with is his plans were they were better than the Republican plans, better than the, what they would have done if they had won the presidency. But it wasn't enough for his base to show up and vote mm -hmm. in 2010. That's and right. that was the biggest problem. You had you did have an energized Republican base, but you also had a de-energized Democratic base who had been told, number one, basically, like, I got this. You guys can, you know, peace out. Thanks for electing me president. Mm -hmm. Like, good mm -hmm. luck with your lives. You can go home now. And weren't given much to really fight for because all of the solutions offered were so sort of like milquetoast in middle of the road. What Biden will benefit from is just because of the sugar high, because of the vaccinations, he is very likely to have a really strong economy. Um, how much of that is his doing or not is very open to debate. The relief bill definitely has something to do, to do with it, with yeah. it mm -hmm. for sure. But also it's just like the vaccines are going on. He partly gets credit for that, too. That's mm -hmm. going relatively well compared to the rest of the world. So he's going to get an, 
outsized political benefit just from kind of being in the right place at the right time, which has been the story of Joe Biden's like ascent to the presidency from the beginning. Yeah, but okay, but here's the thing. Think about how much better it could be if he did the same thing that we were talking about. Oh, my God, if Trump just did one thing, he would have won. If Biden just does one big, bold thing that then you're talking about way more. 10 more points in popularity, you know, like if he, if it's well, you're also talking about something UBI, that's, you're also talking about something that's durable yes, versus durable. like, exactly. Let me hope the economy is in the right place when I happen to be running again, or when we happen to have the midterms. This stuff is all low key. Whatever you think of this stuff, it's all low key, mm-hmm. right? Hit me with one big, I'm actually going to a thousand dollar UBI. We're going to get this passed. We're going to actually do that. And it's going to people. are you kidding me? Yeah. People would lose it. Right. He would see. This is the thing, Crystal. People don't realize that like we're all jaded and biased by our current moment in history. And so the way everybody thinks about this stuff now is like, well, presidential elections in the U.S.—they are what they are. They're relatively close. They're always going to be relatively close. That is not even close to true. You go back even to some of Bill Clinton's races, total blowouts. Ronald Reagan's race, total blowout. FDR won four times, and there was one time he won what every state but one or two. People don't realize that is still possible. I don't care about how ruthlessly partisan everything is. If you materially improve people's lives in a way that's really clear and they know you were the one who was fighting for it, you were the one who was doing for it, all the bitching and moaning in the culture war, Dr. Seuss, Mr. Potato Head bullshit, people will overlook that and be like, I'm going to vote for you because you just put money in my bank account. You're continuing to put money in my bank account. So that's the thing is like if you think big and if you act big, you can change the whole game. Yeah. I mean, win with fucking 40 states in the next election if you really want to go big and really want to do good by the American people. That is correct. And that is not Joe Biden. That's but exactly right. <laughs> yes, that is. I mean, and that is the thing is if you have that kind of politics that people really personally experience as transformational and changing what's possible for them in their lives, um, then it just totally exposes the like potato head and Dr. Seuss stuff for just how petty and silly it really is. That's exactly right. I mean, you just, you try to bring that and people are going to laugh you out of the room. Why the fuck are we talking about this? What's that to do with government? Yeah. But if you're, you know, if you're tinkering around, tinkering around the edges, you're up in this tax right here, that one there a little bit in a way that no one is going to actually really notice. If you're um, doing some infrastructure, but again, like you're not really going to see it in your community your bridge that was falling down just might be slightly less falling down, then, yeah, you can still get sort of caught into those, oh, the biggest thing, the biggest issue for me is whether I can buy every single Dr. Seuss book at the moment (laughs) that I want to buy it, which is also hilarious, side note, because some of Dr. Seuss's books are phenomenally left-wing and anti-capitalist, which I really enjoy. Oh, that's interesting. The Lorax in particular. That's interesting. I was under the impression that uh, he was... Deep, deep bigot. The Lorax is, I mean, I think he was very, I think he was a bigot Mm -hmm. in his time, for sure. But he was an anti-capitalist The Lorax (laughs) is completely anti-capitalist and like, uh, it's like climate environmentalist Mm -hmm. and anti-capitalist. It's a great book. You should check it out. Um, I'm a grown-ass man. You want me to read Dr. Seuss by myself? (laughs) I'll I'll bring it to you. We'll do a reading here. (laughs) Imagine me on like a Saturday night sitting there reading Dr. Seuss. Um, But you ready for this turn? You know who understands the power of transformational, big-picture, tangible politics? Oprah? Andrew Yang. Oh, 
Andrew Yang, too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't really feel like I need to introduce him, but you guys know Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, um, leading candidate right now for mayor of New York. Really interesting thinker, and we are excited to welcome him now. Andrew Yang, it is so great to see you. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing better for seeing the two of you, and I love that you're in the same location. Like, it feels like old times. Uh, congratulations on the new podcast. I'm told that it's like this mega hit. <laughs> you are to told correctly. Everybody <laughs> loves it, obviously. Um, no, but we were supposed to talk to you a few weeks back or a month back. I, I don't know. Time is a flat circle. Um, and you unfortunately came down with coronavirus. Very inconsiderate of you. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling? Have you fully recovered? Have you been having any of those longer term symptoms? How are you doing physically? Thanks for asking, Crystal. COVID was a very difficult time, but I'm feeling much better now. I'd say that I'm so I'm, I'm not a long hauler, like I don't have any of the, those kinds of effects, but there's still like this very faint residual shortness of breath and, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, a little bit of uh, lung fatigue. Um, but I, I'm feeling a million times better than I was, uh, you know, a month plus ago. Um, so we're glad to hear that you're you're doing a lot better. I remember when we first heard the news, we were both sort of floored. Um, so glad you're doing better. Uh, to jump into some policy talk, I mean, the main reason why you sort of um, hit the scene and became a big hit and really blew up in, in the presidential election is uh, everybody knew you as like, you're the UBI guy, you're the universal basic income guy. And, uh, you know, got to give you a lot of credit because you, you put it on the map. And I really don't think without your contribution to that, that it would have blown up to the place we are now where even with the pandemic happening, you saw it increase even more in popularity, where now it's like overwhelming. I don't know. I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but it's like 70 percent or something like that. I mean, it's really it was, up there. The, the direct checks, I know, were the single most popular component of Biden's very popular relief bill. And I do think that that owes in, a, in large part to you starting that conversation. Yeah. And I think even when you pull the recurring checks, universal base income, it's still sky high. But anyway, um, one of the criticisms of you that I thought was interesting on UBI, I wanted to ask your opinion on this, is there's a right-wing version of UBI and there's a left-wing version of UBI. And to sum it up, the left-wing version of UBI is that when you cut the checks, it needs to be equal to or more in monetary value than what the current social safety net is paying people and offering people in a variety of different ways. The right-wing version of UBI is, hey, let's sort of like scrap the social safety net and just cut people a check, but the dollar amount would be basically less than what people are currently getting through the social safety net. So let me ask you, in your conception of an ideal UBI, how does it work? Does it work with the social safety net? Is it something that's additional to the social safety net or are there social safety net cuts and then you do the UBI to match the dollar amount? Uh, explain that for us. Sure. Well, first, I, I want to thank both of you for helping, frankly, provide me a platform when I was running for president. Uh, it was not the most mainstream proposal when I championed universal basic income. And I think if people reflect on the first time they heard it, maybe on a debate stage, it was literally laughed at. You know, where I was like, right. we right. just give everyone a thousand bucks a month. And people were like, ha ha, mainstream media commentators were like, uh, you know, this is not a serious consideration. Um, and it was folks like you that helped elevate my um, campaign to a point where people started taking it seriously. And now, as you said, uh, a majority of Americans are for universal basic income, uh, something like 85% are for cash relief during the pandemic. 
Uh, and so this is going to, in my mind, be front and center in terms of our public policy discussions ongoing. Uh, to your question, Kyle, about sort of versions of UBI, I always had the physician principle of do no harm in mind. Uh, you know, like the, I met hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are dependent on various safety net programs when I was running for president. And the last thing you want to do is diminish the level of resources available to people who are in that position. So I, I always wanted to do more for people, not less. Uh, you know, there, there are um, intricacies uh, to our system so that people can find edge cases. But for me, it was always trying to improve people's lives and not taking anything away from anyone. You originally um, came up with the or, or leaned into the UBI solution because some of, some of the research that you did around automation, the way that it was causing job loss, the way it was transforming our workforce, the way that that transformation had led to increased votes for Donald Trump. Do you still see that as like the driving reason to move forward with UBI or have your views shifted at all? Unfortunately, Crystal, we're living a version of the future I'd feared, where the pandemic has sped up the automation of many jobs. I mean, you're seeing tens of thousands of retail locations close either temporarily or forever. Uh, and now even public sentiment has shifted, where if you walk into a store and you see self-checkout or a robot cleaner, you're not mad at it anymore. You know, you're just like, oh, that makes sense now. Uh, and so there are companies that have just come out and said, from Google to Tyson Foods uh, to Sam's Club, saying we're going to try and make our operations more robotic. Um, and, and now uh, people are embracing that uh, shift to a much higher degree than they did. So I was concerned about the fact that people were going to lose their jobs. And as we're having this conversation, the American labor force participation rate is down even lower than it uh, was when I was running. I think it's something like 61.2% right now, uh, which means that only 61.2% of Americans who are uh, of working age are actually working right now. And this was always my great fear is that more and more people are going to get pushed out of the workforce uh, and become detached. And you are going to see some very, very terrible manifestations of that. So uh, it, it and that that was Trump. And then that's what we're seeing right now in different ways. So let me ask you, what's your theory as to why mainstream media has treated you so harshly? Because, you so know, Crystal and I were just talking about this earlier. <laughs> what's that, Andrew? We missed that. I was just saying, like, why have they treated me so shabbily, so shabbily? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Crystal and I were talking about this earlier. There was just a New York Times article that came out. The headline, what was the headline again? Headline was like, new poll shows the leading candidate in the New York mayor's race is undecided. And of course, the poll has you up, but they don't mention that until like six paragraphs in. And then it's all these caveats about and, why you being up in the poll doesn't really mean that you're ahead in the race. And, and I've seen absurd criticisms <laughs> that like, you're somehow soft on white supremacists or alt-right or like my favorite one is anti-asian <laughs> like so why why what's your theory as to why they've treated you so negatively and why alternative media has actually treated you so favorably <laughs> wow i mean i like i hadn't really seen it as like you know so cut and dried in terms of uh i mean certainly alternative media i'll start there i think that folks like the two of you uh, and independent voices and podcasters, I mean, mo for the most part, you all uh, rely upon your own judgment and independent point of view. And that's why people like you and follow you. And, and so if you spend time with 
uh, candidate like me or dig into my ideas and you think, oh, well, I might not agree with every aspect of this, but this is interesting. Um, and so let me explore that. Uh, and that's been the kind of reception I've gotten from many independent voices and, and podcasters and what you characterize the alternate uh, alternative media, Kyle. In terms of the, the mainstream media, I think it's frankly like the inverse dynamic where like I, I'm not someone that for the most part they have been able to uh, trade access with for years and years. <laughs> and so um, my uh, rise in popularity or the fact that I'm leading in the polls is something that they find uh, somewhat foreign or threatening, uh, I guess, because it's like from outside of the institutions that they've spent so much time uh, within or trafficking with. Um, and so I just think there's like this native resistance. Um, but it is it has been disappointing. Like you hope that journalists would frankly use their heads, use their judgment, look up and say, well, let's say in, in this case, Andrew Yang's leading the polls. And it's, instead of trying to poo-poo that, dig into like, why is that? And if they dug into why it is, they would find that a lot of people in New York City are very frustrated with uh, politics as usual. And they're not that excited about electing someone who's been embedded in some of these uh, low-functioning institutions for years and years and years. Yeah. Do you feel like your coverage has been different during the mayoral race than it was during the presidential race? Because just from my, you know, outsider perspective, and I try to keep up with, with what you're up to, but I can't say I follow every single news item. So my well, sort I mean, of I surface level... <laughs> That's <laughs> really, really, a, I'm sorry, I'm failing you there. But my surface level impression is during the presidential race, the effort was just to ignore you, like yeah. leave you off of graphics, just like ignore that you were on the stage, ignore that you're in the polls, just kind of push you off altogether. Um, this time around, it seems to be, I think, because they can't ignore you because you're leading in the polls. There's a more sort of aggressively negative approach. At least, again, that's been my impression. Is that how you've perceived it or how have you experienced the difference in coverage this time? I think that your characterization is fairly accurate, Crystal. Certainly when I was running for president, I always saw the enemy as uh, Oblivion, <laughs> like or just being ignored completely, uh, and th this time uh, it's something different. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, different ways to try and explain away or, or minimize the objective success of our campaign thus far. Where, if you look at any objective measurement, whether polling or number of individual donors or number of volunteers or excitement uh, on the the street. Uh, then I'm ahead, uh, you know, and and there have been a lot of accounts that have not taken the obvious like to measure where it's like, well, like, let, let's uh, figure out the field and like, you know, why does it look the way it does? Um, so I, I think that your characterization is more or less accurate. And I will say that it's fueled in large part because there are, let's call it eight major candidates in this race. And most of them have little recourse but to try and plant negative stories about me. That's like their, mm. their go-to move. Cause if you're like behind in the polls and you're looking up and, uh, and then you're like, well, what are we going to do? It's like, let's call a friendly journalist and like, you know, try and stick it to Yang <laughs> like that. So, so uh, you have seven campaigns trying to fuel negative coverage. Um, and many journalists, frankly, will uh, play into that because, uh, you know, it's the path of least resistance. So this question is going to sound like it's a joke, but I actually mean it seriously. You took a stand against genitally mutilating baby boys. And I want to ask you how you came to the position that cutting off the tips of baby dicks is wrong. Because 
and I, I like what I was raised in an environment where that was viewed as like you know that's cultural or that's part of the tradition and it's very very widespread and it's astonishing how few people have actually come to your position which I think is objectively the correct position so how did your mind get changed on that well we had our minds um, focused on this when our boys were born <laughs> and so you know your your uh, son is born and then you are faced with that choice and then you start thinking like wait wh why do people like choose to do what they do and first let me say that in my mind it should be completely up to parents and families what they decide to do um, with their children um, but I, I did find that at least like the def default assumption that you should do a certain thing um, should be held to, to light like, you know, to a higher degree, Kyle. So we just learn through experience, you know, like you're a parent, uh, you have to make a decision for your child. Um, and then you start reflecting on uh, how things are presented and whether there are genuine health uh, benefits in, in a way that some people take for granted. Has it been hard, your presidential campaign, part of what was really exciting about it is because it was about really big and structural and potentially transformational ideas. Have you found it challenging at all to transfer that sort of platform down to the, the city level? And, and as part of that answer, you know, what was it that really made you think the next right move is to try to run for mayor of New York? Well, Crystal, it's so perceptive because running for president, again, the enemy was being ignored and we were running on this vision for a human-centered economy that works for people, measuring our success differently, putting money into people's hands, improving our way of life. Uh, and there was like a purity and joy to the presidential campaign that um, I, I still treasure every day and like all the people that supported us. Running for mayor is a different landscape. Uh, the the values are the same, where my goal is to re reignite New York City's economy, because right now, frankly, you know, we're, we're badly wounded, uh, but also improve our way of life uh, by putting cash relief into people's hands, by getting people high-speed internet, by getting people basic financial services. They don't have to rely upon check cashers and money lenders and, and even pawn shops. So the values are the same, but you have to calibrate the policies differently to account for a different operating environment. Uh, now, one of the things that a lot of people, so a lot of people became familiar with me during the presidential. And so they think, okay, like Andrew Yang, UBI guy, big idea guy wants to give everyone money, which I do, you know, and I, if I could do that here in New York, I totally would. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the ways that um, the campaign was able to grow is that I actually have a fairly uh, keen operational uh, mindset where you have to try to generate value and in some cases revenue, depending upon the type of organization you are. Uh, you have to work with what you have. You know, you can't get too far in front of yourself in terms of um, what you're going to frankly tell people you can deliver. Like it has to be something that you're confident you're going to be able to deliver. So I enjoy uh, aspects of this crystal because us, it, a lot of it's so real, it's so gritty. You know, like uh, today I'm going to be doing an event on frankly getting the trash picked up <laughs> like in, in New York City. Um, and so that's a very different type of idea than uh, giving everyone money and elevating our way of life. But it's very important to 8.3 million people that their trash gets picked up. Um, so there, there's like a, a different 
character to the issues, but I'm still excited about it just because I like trying to solve problems and make things better for people. So uh, during the presidential race, you called for decriminalizing all drugs, which puts you in a position, I honestly think, above and beyond all the other politicians who are running. I think that's an even better position than what Bernie Sanders was advocating for. So today we got the news that apparently there's a deal that's been worked out in New York where they're, they might end up legalizing there marijuana. There's coming to New York State. <laughs> that's right. We, that's right. I, well, I hope they sign the bill as soon as possible, but it would be particularly fun if they signed it on April 20th, and then it would give everyone like a cause to celebrate. That's um, right, yes. But my question <laughs> for you is, as mayor of New York City, would you uh, try to go beyond that and decriminalize all substances and copy the model that we know works, which is Portugal? I think we should acknowledge that the war on drugs has been a failure and that far too often it's been a war on people, a war on human beings. And we should also acknowledge that there have been major corporations spending billions of dollars turning people into addicts in different ways. And then criminalizing addiction um, strikes me as the wrong approach. As a basic example, you've had billions of dollars getting people hooked on opiates and then some of them uh, end up switching to heroin or another opiate that was not the original substance, but then when you turn to them and say, okay, we're going to bust you for heroin, it's like, well, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to, like, frankly, like, like get you addicted to, to a similar substance. Uh, so I, I would be instructing uh, the DAs and NYPD to, uh, to target folks who are trying to get others addicted, uh, but not folks who have levels of, of a substance that are intended for personal use or personal consumption. There's a massive difference between having, you know, a, a lot of a drug intended for trafficking or sale and then being someone who's using it in the privacy of your home. Yeah. Um, New York City is going to face a pretty tough landscape, both from a budgetary perspective. There's, you know, getting schools fully reopened, as you said, the economy. Um, it's going to take some time to get everything rebooted there. What do you see as, as the biggest challenges? I, this is a really tough job that you're trying to sign yourself up for, trying to get elected to. Um, what do you think the landscape looks like? Well, I'm, I'm a numbers guy, uh, Crystal, and you, as are you. I mean, I think you're a CPA, so, you know, you'd have a similar um, uh, frame. But we're, we're down 30,000 lives, uh, friends, family members, neighbors. We're down 600,000 jobs, 60 million tourists who supported about half of those missing jobs, 84% of commuters, 70% of subway ridership, thousands of small businesses have closed or are closing. And when you look around, uh, you can feel this. I mean, that this city is struggling, it's wounded. And as great as many of our priorities are, it's going to be really, really hard to solve a lot of our problems if the streets are still uh, filled with empty storefronts, uh, if the office buildings are still empty. So job number one has to be to send a very, very clear message that New York City is open for business, it's open for travel, it's open for concerts and, and all the things that uh, make New York City great nightlife. Like I think nightlife's a major priority. Uh, so these are the things that I'm going to be focused on first is making New York City the fastest COVID comeback recovery city. 
And I do think there's a ton of potential energy, both here in New York and outside of New York. I'll even use you all as an example. After you do get vaccinated, wouldn't you love to visit New York? Anyone listening to this, don't you miss New York City? It's been a little while, probably. <laughs> I personally miss New York City. As someone who used to live there, I miss it a lot. That's what I'm talking about. So, uh, so as soon as it's safe for us all to travel and get together, I've already committed to having the country's biggest post-COVID celebration, uh, saying, look, New York City's open for tourism and remind people uh, of all the joy and excitement that comes with New York City in good times. Because right now, the images that a lot of people have are, frankly, pandemic-related. Uh, you know, it might be people leaning out of windows and banging pots and pans. Uh, so we have to give them a very different sense of New York to to give a lot of our small businesses a real path to recovery. So I have a, a very broad question for you, but I'm really curious what your answer is. How would how would you describe your politics? Wow, Kyle. Uh, you know, I I would characterize myself as uh, data driven and and uh, motivated to improve people's lives. So if someone presents something to me and I think it'll work for people, I'll probably be excited about it. Uh, I don't know if there's a label for that. <laughs> you know, I think one, one of the things that was interesting about the presidential campaign was that when I was coming up, uh, there were different people who responded to me in different ways, in part because I was a little bit hard to categorize or classify mm. uh, politically or ideologically. Um, I don't know if there's a school of thought to what I uh, represent uh, or how I try and um, inform myself. Uh, but I, I think I'm just driven by uh, a desire to make people's lives better. And, and uh, I want to rely upon uh, relatively objective measurements to, to do so. Um, I think you're right. I think that made you hard to categorize. I think it is part of why you had, I, my recollection is more cro actual crossover Trump support than any other candidate, which was weirdly used to like cast dispersions on you. I think it's also created some suspicion of like, who is this guy really? What is he really up to? Um, are there thinkers or past politicians or philosophers that you sort of look up to as role models or model yourself after? Well, I'm the first to say that universal basic income was not Andrew Yang's idea at all, and uh, that it was championed most prominently by Martin Luther King. And he was fighting for a guaranteed minimum income. It is what he was uh, actually fighting for when he was assassinated. And his book, Chaos or a Community, just lays out the case very, very clearly. So it's strange that his teachings have lain dormant for decades because the economy has borne out, frankly, some of his more dire warnings. And one of the things that he said at the time was that we need to reach out to our poor white brothers and sisters and build common cause with them. And uh, he said that they're going to try and keep us from doing that, <laughs> but, but, we, but we have to try and do that. And th this was unfortunately literally weeks before he was assassinated. So uh, I would like to, to see my role as reinvigorating uh, energy or interest in his vision. Uh, it's one reason why his son, Martin Luther King III, it has endorsed me and is co-chairing my mayoral campaign. Uh, Martin and I spent a lot of time together when I was in Atlanta and Georgia campaigning for Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. So to the extent that I'm 
inspired by uh, a figure, and I don't know if people consider Martin Luther King, uh, you know, a political figure so much as like a historical or spiritual figure. But when I was in Atlanta, I had the privilege of visiting Dr. King's childhood home with his son, uh, who had childhood memories there. And, and we looked out the front stoop uh, at the view that Dr. King saw every morning when he woke up. And on the left, you could see some very nice houses. And then on the right, you could see some very uh, poor houses. And he said, this is one of the things that drove his father. And down the street at the King Center, there's this very clear vision statement about trying to combat the three evils of racism, poverty, and war. And I think that most people think about Martin Luther King uh, Jr. where the first one is concerned, which is racism. Uh, but I, I'm going to suggest that poverty uh, was right up there and should be. So, uh, Andrew, I want you to talk to me for a little bit about regulation, because I remember when I went through your presidential platform, one of the criticisms I had is that I, I came across something about sunsetting regulations after a certain number of years, they're like an automatic sunset provision on government regulations. Is that your current view on government regulations? And how involved would you be as mayor with sort of regulating the excesses of Wall Street? Well, Kyle, I, I remember that well. Uh, and you know, the point I was trying to make with that was really that we need to examine some of the thickets of rules that have kind of taken on a life of their own that um, might have uh, been useful at one point, but maybe they're, they're less helpful now. And in the New York City context, I cannot tell you how many people I talk to who are small business owners who say that they get reached out to only to check up on whether they're satisfying certain uh, requirements and that three agencies will reach out to them and then one will say this is fine and the second will say it's not fine, you need to make this change and then the third will say something different. And they're throwing up their hands, they feel very much at the, the mercy of various agencies who reach out to them only to see whether they're complying with various rules. And one agency will tell them that it's fine. Another agency will say it's not fine. They need to make a change. The third agency will say something else. And the agencies don't talk to each other. Uh, I talked to one small business owner in Jamaica, Queens, who uh, missed a hearing. And because she missed a hearing, then the, her fine was doubled. So what started out as a $1,000 fine became a $2,000 fine, and she couldn't afford the original $1,000 fine. And so now she's just like, I don't know what to do. And this, by the way, was a... a, a a black woman, uh, small business owner, like the, exactly the kind of person that, frankly, we should be trying to help at every turn. Um, and so I, I think that there are real opportunities for us to streamline some of the workings of these agencies, particularly where small businesses are concerned. Uh, I've already committed to trying to create a digital one-stop shop for these businesses. And tell people, look, to the extent that our agencies are complex and bureaucratic, we should be suffering that, not you. You know what I mean? It's like for you, the business owner, or you, the uh, parent or a citizen, uh, like you should not be banging your head into a desk trying to figure out our red tape. Uh, and right now, a lot of folks have said to me that that is their situation where the city is concerned and they don't have a choice because the city is this uh, very large, complicated uh, set of bureaucracies, and if you can't figure it out, then it's on you. Um, and, and that's not really the, the way we should be operating in the 21st century at this point. One of my core goals is to just make government more user-friendly and accountable and human. Uh, one of the things I was joking about, but it's accurate, like I'm going to have 
uh, a czar of a number of things. Like I, I've already uh, committed to appointing, for example, a deputy mayor of uh, culture, entertainment, and nightlife, because I think the nightlife industry is actually crucial to New York City's recovery. Uh, but I need to have a person because you need to have a person that you can hold accountable. Um, and the goal is to make that person then have to, the responsibility to build out uh, an organization and system so that they can actually field uh, incoming problems. But I'd much rather that approach than here's the faceless bureaucracy and it's on you to navigate it. And if you can't navigate it, then tough luck and then we're gonna come stick it to you. So that that's a really interesting point, and you know this is something that I've had uh, some personal experience with as well. My father was a, a small business owner; He's, he had owned a number of businesses over the course of his life. And um, so, if I understand your view cor uh, properly, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea that for smaller businesses, for regular folks, they seem to be dealing with too much red tape, and there's too much regulation, and it doesn't make a lot of the regulations don't make sense and there's not enough communication and all that stuff. Um, but is it fair to say that perhaps there's we have a problem that's on the opposite end of the spectrum for the different sizes of businesses? So in other words, the bigger the corporation, the more money, the more wealthy the individual, the more power they have, the more there's like no regulation and they can get away with things that are egregious to the extent that on Wall Street, a lot of these you know, uh, companies are too big to fail and they have fraud as a business model, to steal the phrase from Bernie Sanders. So do you view it in that sort of way that like this, the little guy and the small businesses are overregulated, but the big ones are underregulated? I, I do, Kyle. I mean, we can see that really clearly. And you have a company like Amazon that's worth one and a half trillion dollars, paying nothing in federal taxes and just running rings around our government. You have these giant social media companies that are selling our data and profiting to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And then you see our legislators just grandstanding and, and engaged in theatrics when they should have been uh, having a much more a uh, serious conversation about what these social media companies mean to our society and our democracy years ago. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, we're relying upon provisions in a 1996 law that was written before Facebook even existed to regulate Facebook. Like, how does that make any sense at all? So you can look up and down at the fact that the megacorps have been getting away with uh, incredible, uh, you know, uh, in incredible abuses uh, and our government has been out to lunch on them. And then you have these little guys who are just trying to do the right thing and then we're all over them. Um, so I, I think your description of, of this, Kyle, is right on and I'd agree with it. Yeah. All right, so Andrew, you know I love you and am not unbiased where you're concerned, um, but I also wanna level with you. I really hated what you wrote about BDS in an op-ed that was generally about your approach to the, to the Jewish community. You said a Yang administration will push back against the BDS movement, which singles out Israel for unfair economic punishment, not only as BDS rooted in anti-Semitic thought and history, hearkening back to fascist boycotts of Jewish businesses, it's also a direct shot at New York City's economy. Do you see criticism of Israel as fundamentally anti-Semitic? I do not see criticism of Israel as fundamentally anti-Semitic. Um, I think BDS is a very different thing than criticism of, uh, let's say, the Netanyahu administration uh, or even of uh, some of Israel's policies. Well, it's an attempt to push back on the occupation of the, the occupied territories, that what's seen as an illegal occupation by international law. It's modeled on the successful movement in South Africa. It's nonviolent. 
what is it about that movement that you single out to say that is anti-Semitic and equivalent, I mean, you equate it essentially to fascism. BDS specifically, as an organization, as a movement, uh, has refused to disavow extremist elements that have frankly uh, declared uh, that Israel does not even have a right to exist. So that's quite extreme. It's very, very different than what you described earlier, Crystal, in terms of people having a political point of view on Israel or an administration or its policies. So it's not the tactics per se, but some of the people that are involved that they haven't uh, condemned or distanced themselves from? Is that the issue? Well, so BDS as an organization, as a movement, uh, has refused to uh, to disavow uh, extremist elements that have essentially said Israel does not have a right to exist. So, Andrew, uh, let me ask you this then, because... The more I looked into BDS, the more I saw nuances, and perhaps, you know, it, it doesn't make the most sense to take the most extremist elements of, of a group and define the whole movement that way, and, you know, we've learned that lesson in the context of other movements and other groups, but would you concede that there's a difference between, say, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions of all of Israel versus boycott, divestment, and sanctions specifically of the illegally occupied territories. Because again, as Crystal pointed out, that is the model that effectively worked in apartheid South Africa. No, I'm not sure I, I understand the distinction you're drawing, Kyle, genuinely. Like, I'm just not sure I understand it. Um, right, I can explain it further if you want. It's the areas that it's, all, it's, it's a matter of historical record and fact that are being illegally occupied right now, that the international community all agrees, there's no dispute over it. Some elements of the BDS movement only want to boycott, divest, and sanction from those particular areas. So in other words, the other areas of Israel, they leave alone, but particularly the occupied territories, they say, let's do boycotts, divestment, and sanctions in order to try to bring about Palestinian human rights. Don't you think there's a difference between boycotting in the areas specifically where they're violating international law and boycotting areas where they're not? Uh, I'm on the record as supporting a two-state solution, which I think is a, a fairly uh, mainstream perspective. And if I understand your question, uh, Kyle, you know, people who are advocating for a two-state solution, uh, I would agree with that sentiment. So here's the other thing about it, Andrew. Why did you want to make this statement? Because I guess what bothered me, I'm just leveling with you on this, like you'd taken some criticism in the Orthodox Jewish community because of the position you had and some of the statements you made about circumcision. And then you put out this statement. I mean, I know you make the case BDS is tied to New York City's economy as kind of a tenuous connection there. Why was it that you decided to make the statement? Because it felt... I'll just be frank with you. It felt like pandering, which is not something that you normally do because you'd taken criticism in this other area and you wanted to go over, you know, over and above to signal your support here. Just talk a little bit about your thinking of why you thought it was important to put this in per this particular op-ed. The economic ties between New York City and Israel are very, very significant and very real. So I wouldn't just uh, put that aside, Crystal, especially if you're in the situation New York's in now. Um, and uh, with the, the so sorry you said something else in, in your oh it was uh, uh, it was around whether this was sort of an over uh, like a, a response to something that had gone before um, it, it's genuinely uh, the case that New York City is the home to more Jews 
than any place outside of Israel. It's like a very, very serious uh, responsibility to the global Jewish community. Um, and it's something that I would take very seriously as mayor. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's something that I think you do have to think about the context of New York City for the, the global community in that light. And that was frankly a bit of a learning for me where I, I frankly did not realize just the level of importance of the mayoralty of New York City to the global community. So final follow-up on this, then I promise we'll let it go. But my question is, if if Palestinians resist violently, that they, that's called terrorism. Everybody says it's terrorism, they denounce it. If they can't resist peacefully through boycotts and sanctions and an economic approach, what approach would you say is okay? Like, how can they resist to try to bring about human rights and end the occupation and, and have a state? How can they resist that's acceptable if they can't do it peacefully and they can't do it violently? Uh, I, I think that that's an oversimplification, Kyle. I think that there are many peaceful ways to advocate for a two-state solution uh, that don't involve uh, some of the measures that BDS has recommended. All right, fair enough. Um, all right, we'll move on from this, Andrew, and we appreciate you answering all of these questions because I know it's something that's important to, to you and to us and to our audience as well. Um, talk to me about the school opening situation in New York City right now. What is the current status and what are your thoughts about where things need to go? Uh, I'm a public school parent. My children's schools have been closed for the better part of a year over a year. And the Parents and families that are suffering the most through that uh, are the families that can least afford it, where data clearly shows that online education is 30 to 70% less effective than in-person uh, instruction. And so any parent out there, Crystal, you may resemble this, but any parent who has this sinking feeling that our kids are not exactly thriving during this time, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. we feel that way for a reason. I mean, like our kids are not thriving during this time. And worse yet, 29% of New York City residents don't have high-speed internet at home. So those are disproportionately black and brown families. So for them, it's not even 30 to 70% worse, it may be 100% worse. Uh, and in my mind, we should have been trying to open schools for those kids and at-risk kids and younger kids who frankly had lower risk of uh, both contracting or spreading the coronavirus uh, as soon as possible, uh, before now. So that's something that I've said in uh, a number of different environments, and I, I, I dearly hope that this is not an issue by the time I take office, uh, but I think schools should be open as quickly as possible uh, to the extent that it's safe to do so, and I think that we can be fighting harder for that. So I have one more difficult question for you, and, and you knew this one was coming because Kyle Klinsky and Medicare for All are like this, okay? <laughs> but so, so here it is. During your presidential campaign, you know, you said you support universal health care, and you said you support Medicare for All, but then when you were pressed on it a little bit by journalists, you said, well, I support Medicare for All if we're talking about the slogan, not necessarily the bill. You just mean Medicare for All as a stand-in for universal health care. My question is, I know you're a data-driven guy because I've seen a lot of evidence of that. I think your solutions are very well thought out. You're very policy-oriented, and I respect that very much. And so when you look at the Commonwealth Fund studies, for example, and you look at the World Health Organization studies, for example, it's not a coincidence that, as a general rule, seven out of the top ten or eight out of the top ten healthcare systems in the world are all single-payer healthcare systems. So since the data shows the single-payer healthcare systems are the best, why not sign on for a full single-payer system? And as a follow-up to that, what's your healthcare plan for New York? Uh, 
Kyle, I was, I was laughing because I, I don't think this this was a, a difficult question. I mean, if you look at my book, I literally say like a single payer healthcare system would be the best approach. Um, and so I'm on board and I'm going to try my best to provide something uh, to that effect here in New York City. There is an NYC CARES healthcare program that does not cover uh, everyone by a long shot. It covers just a few people. And the public hospitals here that serve the uninsured and indigent are very much uh, overwhelmed right now by demand. Um, so I want to do everything I can to try to universalize healthcare here in New York City. Uh, I'm for universal healthcare uh, in, in the United States. You know, I, I think that People like Bernie who've been fighting for this have been fighting for the right thing. You've been fighting for the right thing. Uh, like I, I'm on board. Um, I, I just thought, you know, like uh, being for Medicare for all, you know, there's a specific bill. There there are different versions of universal health care. Uh, the pandemic has demonstrated that we've been doing health care all wrong. And I, I would be right there with anyone else who's trying to change that. That's awesome to hear. Um, what do you think of how de Blasio has been as mayor? I will tell you all, uh, you know, just my, my interactions with Bill and the rest of it. So I got to know Bill, uh, you know, we were friendly on the presidential trail. He's a, uh, I think he's a good man. He's like a good human being. Um, but as I've been running for mayor and going around New York City, I run into more and more people that have felt uh, let down by some aspect of his uh, administration and his leadership over this last number of months. Um, so that, that, I guess sums up like how I feel about Bill is that I, I think he's a good man, um, but I think that the city could use a different mayor um, right about now. <laughs> um, I wanted to also ask you about Governor Cuomo, who has been beset by scandal. I mean, first there was nursing home, uh, bad decision making, potentially corrupt decision making, a cover up of the true number of deaths and lying about that. Then there's a rash of um, allegations ranging from, you know, inappropriate comments to inappropriate touches to things that would rise the level of sexual assault. And then the latest shoe to drop is um, it's being reported that he gave special VIP access to coronavirus tests to his friends and family members, including his brother who happens to have a primetime show on CNN, having a state doctor go to his house, give him a swab, the patrollers, taking this to a lab, jumping in front of the line at a time when regular people could not get coronavirus tests. So this is very important service that he was providing to his friends and his family. Um, do you think that he should resign? I've said that he should step aside uh, and let this investigation proceed. Um, the, the same way you might, frankly, have like a school teacher or a police officer kind of step aside from their role while you're investigating uh, uh, them for um, potential abuses. Um, and in this case, in, in my mind, I think most people would agree with this. It would be nearly impossible for him to be able to serve the interests of, of New Yorkers if he's bogged down continuously with uh, controversy and distraction uh, and uh, folks investigating various problems with his administration. So if he were to step aside, then you'd have Lieutenant Governor Hochul focused on the business of the state, and, and then the investigation could proceed. I, I think that would be the best approach. Um, finally, Andrew, just give us a preview. What do you have planned next in the campaign, and what do you think you need to do in order to win? Oh, we are in great shape, Crystal. Uh, we just need to keep putting out a positive case for, for New Yorkers, let people know that there really is a brighter future uh, around the corner, that there's so much pent up energy, uh, both 
human and otherwise, <laughs> uh, that, that's going to, I believe, help launch uh, our own version of the Roaring Twenties uh, here in New York City after we get vaccinated, uh, after people have confidence to, to get together. Certainly, if anyone wants to support my campaign, I would be thrilled. Uh, you can go to andrewyang.com and check out uh, our policies. If you do live in New York City, the city will match any donation you make eight to one. I know it's wild, but if you donate 20 bucks, the city will give us 160 bucks. Uh, and so New Yorkers, your your donations are worth approximately 800% more than other people's. <laughs> as it should be. Um, Andrew, thank you. We really appreciate, we appreciate you and your time as well. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks, Congrats man. on the new show, guys. You you have like awesome chemistry. It's it's one of these things where individually you are great, but together it's even better. So I'll come back anytime, and hopefully we'll have uh, some some good news pretty soon. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you, Andrew. You're uh, you're a uniquely honest voice, and it's really refreshing. And thanks for taking some of our difficult questions too. Not at all, Kyle. Really, you guys are the best. Talk to you soon. So there we have it. Andrew Yang, um, really, really interesting guy. There were two more questions that I wanted to ask him that I didn't get to. One of them is um, he was a, the, a rare voice, actually the only voice, uh, that came out in the Democratic primary for decriminalizing sex work during the presidential race. Mm, um, brave, too. I, well, I think that's super brave because there's not like that's that's something you say and you're not really going to please anybody even people who are in favor of it or sort of like quietly in favor of it you yeah. know like it doesn't strike me as there's this giant movement maybe among sex workers there's some but like it's just it's not an issue that's met its time yet you know and so that was an issue where he sort of led on that and i was actually going to ask him in regards to being new york city mayor will you do anything on that front will you decriminalize sex work is that something you would consider and the other thing i wanted to ask him about was uh the spain four-day work week thing because it reminds me of ubi in the sense that with universal basic income it's this kind of really simple idea but it was also new and innovative while somehow classic at the same time and he <laughs> kind of injected it into the conversation so i was curious his thoughts on four-day work week because it strikes me as like a similar idea but yang overall i mean He's a really, really interesting guy. I think he does care deeply about, um, you know, his specific policies. And it is kind of refreshing to see that he's maintained this giant lead in the New York City mayor race. Totally. With all the knives out for him. Yes. Like, I mean, they're, like I said, last time they just ignored him. Mm -hmm. And this time they are going all the way in. I, that, I guess that's the thing. They laugh at you, they ignore you, they fight you, and then you win, right? right. I mean, yeah. that's mm -hmm. like literally yep. the trajectory that he's on right now. And um, I actually thought it was really interesting to hear his reflections on the media because I was like, are you seeing it the same way that I'm seeing it? And basically his perception is exactly mm -hmm. the same, that they have come aggressively after him in the mayoral race. And his reasoning that it's essentially because, look, he if, if they have the power that they want to have, he shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. So the fact that even though they tried to stonewall him, he was able to get a lot of attention and excitement and donations and this interesting coalition and assert his ideas, make them part of a national conversation in his presidential run, and now is actively leading in the New York City mayor's race, something that should be total machine politics. His opponents, most of them, I mean, they've been in New York City politics for years and years. They've got direct relationships with the New York media that is covering this race. The fact that Andrew Yang is able to jump right over them and lead in the polls, not that you would take anything for granted, is really an indictment of their own power.
Like this should not be possible. And that I think really drives them crazy. That's absolutely correct. Uh, I think, so we asked him that question and I wanted to actually weigh in with my thoughts on that. I think the reason that they don't like him, they meaning the establishment media and the political establishment, Mm -hmm. the reason they don't like him is twofold. One, because he's an outsider and he he didn't go through the proper channels to climb the ladder in the Mm -hmm. party, like, you know, like a kiss ass like Mayor Pete. (laughs) And beyond that, he was the guy, he was the UBI guy. And UBI sounds even more extreme and radical than like Medicare for all. And they don't like that. Mm. They don't like ideas that are big, bold, transformational, you know, FDR-esque, if you will, because that really shakes up the system. And so I think those are the reasons that uh, they really dislike him and the knives are out for him. And the other thing is, you made a great point about the media during the presidential race versus now with him. You're right. They pretty much ignored him during the presidential race. They really, at him, Marianne Williamson, there were mm-hmm. a few that they were just like, we're going to pretend like you don't even exist. Right. Forget it. You're done. You're done. We're not going to cover you at all. And now they can't ignore because he's leading in the polls. And so they go full negative. But here's their problem. It's a paradox for them because they hate him. They want to take him down. But the more they give him negative coverage, the better he does in the polls. And... I think the reason is their attacks are so hacky that everybody sees through them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, they're always so shameless and, like, really accusing him of being anti-Asian. I... Like, st- like if you're going to attack him, don't overreach. And obviously, people could tell. You and I think there are some legitimate criticisms of Andrew Yang. Yeah. But none, none of the criticisms are sensible. They all make Andrew seem way more likable. Right. Exactly. No, it's completely fair game in my opinion, to explore, like, here's his policy positions. Here's what he said on a variety of issues. What does that mean? How does that jive with what he said in the past? What are the implications? Is this the right thing or not? How are voters responding to it? But no, that's not what they're doing at all. To pause on the anti-Asian piece, there was this piece in the New York Times that created this whole question around whether Andrew Yang would be good for Asian Americans. And some of the polling has him leading Asian Americans in the city of New Mm -hmm. York. He gets like 60% of their vote. Mm -hmm. So clearly a large minority or potentially majority of Asian Americans in the city think that Andrew Yang is going to be good for them. But they use all this all this tendentious reasoning. They say, you know, he wasn't the first candidate to condemn the Atlanta shootings. Like, this is some sort of a race. The faster you get to Twitter, the more you care, I guess. I mean, just really, really silly stuff. But it also struck me because it's so the polar opposite of the way they normally use identity. Normally, you'd say, well, this is an Asian-American candidate. Ergo, he must be good for Asian-Americans. Which is, right. Which is also, I mean, that That's was, also that was the assumption, like right. with Kamala, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like Kamala is an African, a, a woman of color. Therefore, she's going to be good for women of color. And we're not even going to ask the question whether it might be different based on her policy stances. But with Andrew, weirdly, the fact that he is of Asian descent, they use that to sort of weaponize against him in the total polar opposite of how they normally use identity. So I thought that was that article article in particular is really weird. And then there was also one from Politico where they went through, oh, he got his start on these right wing podcasts. Ergo, he (laughs) must be like a secret white nationalist. Um, Name checking Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, Joe Rogan (laughs) and other podcasts. And again, 
maybe if you all had covered him and like acknowledged that he existed, maybe he wouldn't have had to lean so heavily on independent media. But these guys were have large platforms. Some of them I like, some of them I really don't like, some of them I respect, some of them I really don't respect. But they have large platforms, large audiences, and God forbid you go and talk to an audience that doesn't already ideologically align with you. I mean, it's just like, it's so ridiculous that that would be an attack. What, the attack is you're trying to appeal to people who don't already agree with you? That's a bad thing? Yeah, that always blew my mind, especially because if you're an effective communicator— then what you do is you get people who on paper upfront nominally disagree, you get them to sign on to your agenda and your ideas, which is only exactly the thing that everybody is supposed to want. Right. Like, don't you want people to be deconverted from ideas that we find odious and primitive and wrong? But they really do turn that into like, no, that's a negative because these people at some point were not pure and good. And so to now get somebody who wasn't pure and good to your side means you're just sort of sullying your side mm. with Im impurity or whatever. Right. It's a very childish way of thinking. But very and, common. Oh, it's incredibly common. But I do think it's also sort of disingenuous. Like, I don't know to what extent people who make those arguments actually believe those arguments. Because if you really stop and think about it for a second, you realize it's the silliest thing you've ever heard. One of the, you know, my biggest honor in doing what I've done online is that I get a number of people who come up to me at Politicon and whenever I do some public yeah. events where they say, hey, man, you stopped me from going down that alt-right pipeline. You deconverted me from Stephen Crowder or Ben Shapiro or whoever it may be. And those are my proudest moments. Right. You know? And it, this is something that they actively are against. And to your point, you brought up the thing about the article Right Wing Podcasts to lump Joe Rogan with Ben Shapiro. I mean, that's just that's damn near criminal. You know, and you don't have to agree with Joe Rogan on everything. Of course, I don't agree with Joe Rogan on everything, but that's it's beyond absurd. Voted for Bernie Sanders. Voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I mean, so silly. And yeah, and Ben Shapiro, he, all he does is standard conservative talking points all day long. To lump those two together is absurd. But again, it's not like Andrew Yang went on to Ben Shapiro's podcast to be like, I agree with you on everything. He went on there to be like, let me make my case for UBI. Let me make my case for whatever left wing idea you fill in the blank, right? Yeah, so, and by the way, he was good at that, and it very worked. Good at it. And right. Trump supporters converted to Andrew Yang supporters. Right. Right. And that, that's the thing is they try to make that out to be a negative when in reality, if you think about it, going into an election, you want somebody who can hold their own base and hold their own supporters and also have crossover appeal. You want as many people as possible to like you and agree with you. And what they do is they turn that into something that's dirty and wrong. And it gets back to is because he didn't come up through the proper channels. Mm -hmm. You know, he did it as an outsider. And if you do it as an outsider, they look at you scornfully. You right. know, it, it, a lot of it has to do with, and I, God, I hate to do the talk about Substack because I, whenever I read the word <laughs> Substack, I cringe now because it's just, it's enough, enough, enough. But yeah, there's a lot of people who are knives out for Substack and it's because, oh my God, you're spreading negative ideas and bad ideas. There's all, every ideology you can imagine is on Substack. Mm -hmm. And it's people who are trying to make it outside of the conventional system where in the conventional system, you got to get a foot in the door and then there's bosses and there's editors. And I hate to break it to you. People are assholes. They don't know what they're doing. They're not like holier than thou and they have all the answers. So when some independent person writes something of their own volition, their own thoughts, and they put it out there and somebody wants to subscribe to it and somebody wants to support them, that's awesome. Right. But they've actually turned that into something that's dirty. Right, because they don't control the space. And, and for, they're also not entertaining and interesting on their own. Right. Yeah. So they have to quash their – they can't compete 
because their shit is so boring and tired and predictable. And they're propped up by the establishment institutions. Right. So they can't really compete. So instead, yeah, they have to sully and tarnish the whole thing. When, yeah, I mean, actually the number one politics substack is this very, this like historian who seems to have a very sort of resistancy ideology, which is why I actually thought Substack might be a little bit saved from that whole thing, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They just pick out the ones or the pieces we don't like or whatever. We, we don't, don't like, like this. Them. Ergo, yeah. the whole thing. The whole thing's a disaster. The whole yeah. thing's problematic. You should have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But as in the case with Andrew Yang, what they're really doing is just drawing more attention to Substack. And yeah. whether, what they're really doing with Yang at this point, especially with media trust at an all-time low, they're just further making the case for Andrew Yang. I mean, I really do. Um, and look, obviously, like we had some tough questions for him. The BDS thing is something I've been wanting to ask him about for a while. But arguably, Andrew Yang is one of the most significant figures in modern American political life because of how he put UBI on the table. And I've been making the case, and I know you've been talking about it a lot, too. Those direct payments have become one of the most potent political policies in American life in the past year. I mean, the transformation on how Americans feel about it, how they think about it, the acceptance of it, bipartisan acceptance of it, this really soup. I mean, I, I think it really transforms people's relationship to the government when it's so incredibly tangible. This money, sh they passed the bill and the freaking money showed up in my account two days later. Like it was there or I got the check in the mail. It came, I put it in my account. Like it really, I paid for groceries and I was able to make my rent. And then you go, it's a light bulb moment. It's like, oh my God, the government could be doing this for me all the time. Yep, that's they right. They just normally choose not to. They just normally yeah. choose to let me like hang out to dry. But they don't have to make that choice. They could actually make another choice. And Andrew Yang really is the political figure who sparked that conversation. I've asked him before, and I wish I could remember the numbers off the top of my head. But unlike him, he said I was a CPA, which is technically true. But I'm actually not good at remembering numbers. I wish I could remember the numbers of how unpopular UBI was when he started talking about it. it yeah, it was not, not popular. Only was I it, was against it. I was against it. Not only then. was it not popular, but people didn't even know what it was. Right, yeah. So, and then once you explain to people, what it was they were like no so the the way that he's moved put that conversation on the table in a way that was very courageous when it was wildly unpopular and the way that has moved in part because of him but also obviously in large part because of the pandemic and the exigencies there that has truly been transformative it absolutely has and it reminds me this conversation reminds me of the stockton study that we just discussed mm -hmm. recently and all they did there that was 500 dollars is what they gave people which seems like not a lot right right but it, it changed people's lives. Yes. And when you looked at the numbers, there were virtually no downsides. All the money, all the money went to the things that you would expect a responsible adult to spend it on. Right. It went to food was, was the main thing. And then after that, it was like utilities. And you told the wonderful story of the guy who couldn't get a day off of work to try to get a better job and he hated his job. And then with that $500, he was able to take one day off of work and then get a better job. It changed his life for the better. The people who were part of that UBI program were more likely to become employed. That's right. So the argument of like, oh, it breeds laziness, that just not true. So you're right. Polar he sort opposite. of put this on the map. Now you're getting little tastes of it with the COVID relief bills, even though it's not recurring. People mm -hmm. get that one time check but like you're right that people have the light bulb moment of like oh so you can have a solution that's as simple and as straightforward as like i want to cut you a check and 
people are loving it. Um, and there was one more point that I wanted to make. Oh, yes. So Andrew, let's say for argument's sake, Andrew wins the race for mayor. He has a successful term. Mm-hmm. What do you think about his prospects running for president again in a situation like that? I mean, they're still going to hate him. I know they're still going to hate him, the peop- but... But the people will like him. The people... So yeah. the question is, do you see a situation, almost like a Bernie situation, where even though there's this giant institutional bias against him that he runs again and he does well, do you think it's possible for somebody like that to win? Because, listen, fact of the matter is, right now, let's be honest, as gross as it is to say, the heir apparent is Kamala. Kamala's the VP. Joe Biden's half dead in, in office. Right. He, he says he wants to serve two terms. Okay, we'll see. right. <laughs> Make it to like Thursday, buddy. All right. Make it to next <laughs> Thursday and we'll have a conversation. So Kamala's the heir apparent because now, she, you know, her national profile has gone up tremendously as vice president. Yeah, that's why but, she was but, for. But let's not forget she couldn't even make it a fucking Iowa when she ran. Everybody was like, eh, not buying it, don't like you. There was an overwhelming mass of public grassroots support for Kamala Harris, Kyle. You're just forgetting it. Right. So, but <laughs> In every CNN green room across the country. That, yeah, those are the only <laughs> ones who supported her. But like, don't you think in a situation like that, that you actually do have a potential future presidential run for somebody like Andrew Yang? Or is that mountain too tall to climb? Um, I don't think the mountain is too tall to climb. Um, I think it's, you know, it's contingent on a lot of things, how these next few years go and how the public feels about Kamala and how she um, acquits herself in the role as vice president. It also, though, depends a lot on, like, how much does Andrew want to rock the boat? Because it's one thing when you're basically nobody. Mm-hmm. You got nothing to lose. You don't know these freaking people. You don't care if they hate you or not or love you or indifferent to you or whatever to jump in put on your ideas and see what happens. That's very different from now I'm an established political figure with a track record of success and I'm contemplating taking on the big machine and the democratic establishment and doing it like blatantly and in their face. I have no idea if that's something that he would have an appetite to do. But in some ways, that's actually the biggest question. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap it up, I just want to say I love your dress today. I love how <laughs> colorful it is. Thank you, sir. I like your shirt today. Well, thank you. Very you look, nice. You look like, um, well, I can't say that, though. Just, <laughs> I was going to say you look like a Fruit Loop, but it sounded like, <laughs> I don't know. That Doesn't that sound sort of derogatory, it even does, though it's not? It sounds very derogatory. Like, I meant you it as a compliment, it, but it sounds derogatory. It, to me, it reads very Easter egg. Like, I just went yeah. I just went all the way in on spring. I just jumped over yeah, the transitional no, like phase, it. and I just went all the way in on spring. I'm big on colors. I think it looks wonderful. Well, so. thank you, Kyle. I wanted to compliment your dress and then also just do a a shameless plug real quick. If you're listening to the audio version of this, um, get get your act together. I don't know what you're doing. Pay the five dollars a month on Substack. Get the video version so you can see how Crystal Ball looks like a pack of Skittles slash Fruit Loop slash (laughs) awesome, colorful, bright, beautiful dress. Um, So, yeah, five dollars on Substack. You get uh, these shows a day early on Friday. But don't worry if you don't pay the five dollars we still love you you can keep listening to the audio version on whatever audio you know podcasts you listen on or you can you know sign up on substack for free and then get the audio as soon as it drops as well on saturday well and obviously because everybody like all the cool kids hate substack now you've got to be on substack yeah I mean, that's, right. that's the yeah. other just pitch to say, for it. it's just, just to like say, fuck you to those subscribe assholes subscribe to yeah. say fuck you to those people that's yeah. a, that's a great reason to sub that right there genuinely is a good reason to do it <laughs> That genuinely is a good reason to do it. But anyway, that's what we got for everybody this week. Thanks, guys. See you next week.